Hey, Adam. Hey, Dave. Today is an exciting day, isn't it? It sure is. But wait, I forgot. Why is today so exciting? Because we've launched our customer education manifesto. A manifesto? Yes, that's right. You know, just how agile software developers created a manifesto back in 2001 that shaped the future of the industry, we've spent some time and pulled together insights and six key principles into a short statement about what modern customer educators like us believe. Well, it's 2020. It's about time for a manifesto. I love it. Six key principles? Sounds super concise. Where can I find it? Did we nail it to the door of a church? We did not, and those are theses, right? Oh, silly me. (laughs) But seriously, we made it pretty easy for you to find. It's right over our website, customer.education, and if you look at the top nav, you'll find a link for a manifesto. Click that, and you'll be right there. Well, that's great. I can just click that and read the manifesto. Oh, it looks like I can sign it, too. Cool. And that's right. That's really important to us. If you go in and read the manifesto and you feel like it resonates with you, sign the page. We're going to add your name to the list and you can show that you're in this elite group of modern customer educators. Oh, geez, I I better hurry up and sign. Something tells me you're already on the list. It's not like we wrote it. Welcome to C-Lab, the customer education laboratory where we explore how to build customer education programs, experiment with new approaches, and exterminate the myths and the bad advice that some people keep telling us and we say, nope, stop that. (laughs) Stop it. Stop, collaborate, and listen. Indeed. I am Dave Darrington. And I am Adam Avramescu here on National Anisette. What is that? Have you you ever had uh, Uzo or Sambuca? Oh, oh, yes. Okay, I got got it now. That's cool. Like anise or licorice-based spirits. Yeah, I looked at that first and like, what is this? Very good. So it's a a spirits kind of day. I I feel spirited. I'm ready for a spirited discussion. <laughs> well, I'm I'm sure we're going to have that. And if you recall, we we had done a previous episode, our first full-on mailbag episode. And this one, we're going to be continuing with a question that Gordon Mack from Vox had uh, sent us. So let's start off. We're going to play his second question, and then, like we did last episode, we're going to respond, and we're going to get into a heated discussion. So here we go. Hey, Adam and Dave, this is Gordon. I work at Box, the cloud content management company, as the learning technology manager, and I'm based out of the San Francisco Bay Area. My second question is, do you have any tips to enable instructional designers and content developers to be self-sufficient in regards to refreshing content in the LMS without needing to go through an LMS admin or take LMS admin training? I ask this question because COVID-19 has forced many companies to leverage cloud storage services and to store their course content like SCORM and video files in the cloud. Wouldn't it be nice if updated course content files didn't need to be re-uploaded into the LMS manually? I would love to hear if anyone has found or created a reliable solution. Thank you for always putting on a fantastic podcast and thank you for taking my questions. Okay, so I remember this question now. This is really thinking about the admin overhead for mm-hmm. IDs, instructional designers, and content developers working in an LMS. Like, how do we how do we really make sure that they can keep their content updated without necessarily needing to learn all the ins and outs of the LMS? So, 
Interesting. Dave, what, do you mm. have thoughts here? Yeah, I mean, where we would start is many customer LMSs do provide a role that's not like a full admin, right? It's, it's oh gosh, you know what? We were, we were on with um, a different vendor. This was an LMS product, and we were talking about these different kinds of roles. Um, and in fact, they had like a, a God-level global administrator and then kind of a regional administrator. Like a demigod. And a content manager. Yeah. <laughs> Demigorgon. What? Um, <laughs> Not where so. I was going, but I like, I, yeah, I like where you took it. You like where my brain is headed. Um, yeah. You, it, it's, I, think, I think I see where we're going here. We're, we're, in a, we're in a context of, hey, we're in times of COVID. I'm not in an office. I have a team. I don't want to put all the burden on one person. Fair. Right. Yeah. Uh, but so there are example, there, there are author roles or reviewer roles in a lot of LMSs too that aren't necessarily like that one god administrator role. Yeah, that that one god administrator. Yeah, you can you can have certain people say, oh well, okay, you're just doing content, but an administrator has to actually approve that or review it, or maybe there's a review mechanism or something like that. Um, maybe you might be using like a separate cloud-based uh, content management system for video. Like we use Wistia. I've used Wistia a lot. It's really good. Yeah, you might use Vimeo. Yeah. Um, it is possible that the way some of those embed content, you might be able to swap out core assets um, without even touching the LMS. You know, okay, just so like there's like there's like a, a source file in Wistia, and that source file mm -hmm. can be swapped out. You have the same embed link, so if the LMS is calling that particular embed from Wistia, and you've swapped yeah. out the source file, then they don't actually ever have to go in the LMS. Yeah, that's right. I mean, have you seen any really good solutions, though, for, for us? I don't know if there are a lot of super elegant solutions around this. Like, I, I would actually think in some ways, I don't know. I, I don't know if I would shy away from just giving my authors an author role in the LMS and, and giving them a little bit of enablement to, to be dangerous in there. Because, I mean, I think part of the symptom here might be if an admin... Like Gordon called out, like like sending someone to admin training to be able to use the LMS. Yeah. Well, I, I would question maybe like how much training should an individual author need to be able to use an LMS? Yeah, because the systems I've used, if I'm just gonna be honest, and I've had this situation, basically I have one person on my team at a couple different companies, and that person is more or less the admin. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean they always do it, but when they can't do their thing, they're on vacation or whatever, it's really been like 15 minutes, maybe a half an hour where we sit down and say, we need to do this. It's really, okay, most of the application makes sense, but there's a couple places like that are gotchas. And, and we get past that, anybody can do this. The only caveat is, do you want everybody mucking about in that system? And I'll give you an example. Um, at current, currently, I've had uh, three separate teams using the platform I use. And we've had only minor issues. And so I think you should be largely able to trust others to be able to use your platform without damaging it and, and without a lot of training. Uh, that, that's all I want to say. Depending on your platform, I know that the ones that I've used have been pretty darn easy. Yeah. Think? Yeah. I just, I don't know. There's not one super simple, elegant solution to this. I wish there was. Um, I mean, there are some folks who even do completely custom solutions where they have this built upon their corporate website and they're, they're doing this all via pull requests. But, mm -hmm. you know, I think for, for most, they're not really doing it that way. They're, they have an LMS in place and the simplicity or lack thereof of the LMS is also going to dictate, um, you know, whether you want to just give someone author permissions in there or whether you want to try to find some other way to get content to, to auto sync. 
Yeah, I think it's just a measure, a matter of how technically sophisticated your deployment structure is. So if you keep it simple, go with the KISS theory, uh, keep it simple, then you probably weren't, aren't going to have a lot of problems with administration overhead. Um, but if you have a more complicated system, for example, one I used to use was, it was, you said pull request, actually had something set up in GitHub. And it, it was, oh, I'm not remembering the name of the, the product right now, Hero something. Um, it was really cool, but it was actually hard to learn because you had to know how to use uh, a subversion, a, you know, a content control uh, control system. Oh, yeah, I remember using subversion. Yeah, it was, it that was, was not easy, not necessarily easy. Actually, no, I'm sorry. It wasn't this version. I've used that in another role. It was Git, GitHub. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it wasn't bad, but it, it, it can get weird because when you're trying to do things like push and pull, then get conflicts. Uh, and even me, it was just a little bit too much. Yeah. I, I, I think that the other thing maybe that's worth mentioning here is that this feels like a problem that has been explored more deeply in the world of documentation and tech pubs mm-hmm. than in the world of customer education. So there are... There are methodologies out there like uh, DITA, which I'm going to see if I can remember what that stands for. It's like the Darwin Information Typology. I don't remember what the A is. (laughs) Um, But you basically have different classifications of content that can be updated in different ways depending on the objective. And then they can be slotted into different forms of documentation. But like if you're going to move to DITA, you need to be at a scale where your content strategy supports that level of administration overhead. So at a certain point, mm. you really, you need to be able to make a decision between like how, how automated do I want this whole system to be? Like, do I really not want anyone mucking around in the source files? I don't want anyone mucking around in any of the content files and re-uploading things to the LMS versus like when, when will uh, creating a system like that actually just add even more admin overhead? Yeah, it's, it's a tricky, it's a really good question. So Gordon, thank you for that. we we obviously spent a lot of time trying to answer it. <laughs> yeah. If anyone does have a good solution to this, because I, I will admit I have not seen a super elegant solution to this in customer education. If anyone does have one, please write in and, and let us know. And Or you could record your answer and we will play it on air at some point. Indeed. Love it. Now, that's actually really good, having other people bring in their answers to our questions. Maybe we'll do a reverse mailbag. Yeah. So it's like, you know, before we were doing You've Got Mail which is what was that Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. Mm-hmm. And now we're doing uh, pay it forward. <laughs> I, I don't remember who's in that. Was that Haley, Haley Joel Osment who was in that movie? Yeah, I think so. Okay, cool. It's been a while. On to the next one. All right. What are, who are we going, going to receive mail from this time? Uh, All right here. I'm going to rus- ruffle through the mailbag. It's good that that joke hasn't gotten old yet. Um, this next <laughs> letter is from Alex Forbes from Thought Industries. So let's hear what he has to say. Hi, Adam. Alex Forbes, Thought Industries. Love your podcast. Based on the results of our 2020 State of Customer Training Report we launched in April, I know our customers would love to know, when launching a customer training program for the first time, what percent of learners should they expect to join? Thank you so much. That's an interesting question. Okay, so we're, we're launching an education program for the first time. And he's asking what percent of learners should – who? how many people are going to start to come to that program? Yeah. Okay. And so I guess like what, what's the baseline? Hmm. This well, is going to be hard. I mean is it a punt to say it depends? Because I'll tell you where I'm coming from. Like there are some baselines out there. One, one relies on – 
how you define what percent of learners, because you could be talking about what percentage of accounts. Um, that's yeah. like your install-based penetration, right? I'm thinking about the TSIA report that we reviewed a few episodes ago. Ooh, numbers, yeah. Right? Okay, let's like, go so there. You could do the install-based penetration. So in, in that report, if I remember correctly, you had 37% of accounts, of, like, of the total accounts that consume training. And then there was a separate one about user penetration within the accounts. 31% of the addressable users in the account consume training. So you effectively had that, 37% of, no, it's 31% of 37%. And there, there you get your baseline of Ew. all users in your install base who might consume training. But these are also more uh, mature orgs for the most part too. Like if you're just launching a customer education program for the first time, then you probably don't have those yeah. baselines either. Okay. So, so you're, you're giving us some benchmarks. I want to give some thoughts here. And again, they may be I'm not trying to be argumentative. I'm not trying to be contentious, but I have to say this. You just can't help it. Yeah, I can't. what we do on this show. Here's what I'll say to this question. Who cares? And I mean, really, who cares? I know we care. I care. But there's this saying, and again, I think we lost attribution for this. It's, It's the original field of dreams modified for customer education. If you build it, they won't come. Say it again. If you build it, they won't come. Just because, my friends, you are making great content, amazing content, stuff that everybody's going to dream about, right? Maybe. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean you've. There, people are just going to go, oh my God, and they're just going to flood into it. They will. But there's work to be done. Um, so, for example, what I'm trying to get at is you've got to sell it. You've got to think about it. You've got to think like a marketing person. You've got to think, how am I going to promote this material? And it's really easy. And I've done this before. I'm like, oh my God, I'm so heads down. I'm making the content. It's really good. I'm reviewing it. I've got a lot of things to think about just building it. But if you have forgotten how that gets sent out, like is it in your CSM team's um, uh, webinars? Is somebody mentioning this? Is it, Do you have a campaign? Do you have marketing material? Do you have all this stuff? You've got to think a little bit larger and sell it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, I mean, going back to the question, it's, you're right. There's not necessarily a strong baseline that's out there. Like you could use the TSIA ones as, as comps if, if you start. want. Right. But if you're first starting your program for the first time, you're probably not necessarily going to have the exact same scenario that TSIA's user base is in. Like those are, again, more mature uh, organizations, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have to aim lower than 37% or 31%. In a way, I agree with you that I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if it's who cares, but it's your, your <laughs> That's base. Just, your, just be contentious. Well, your baseline is your baseline is the way that I would put it, right? Like we, That's the way I put it. When I think about starting a program and when I think about how many people are going to um, engage with it, I'm going to make the assumption in the first place that whatever that number is, I'm going to have to dry, uh, drive it up over time. Because to your point, Dave, mm-hmm. uh, you are going to need CSMs to start distributing it. You're going to need them to start working into their onboarding plans. You're going to need to work with your marketing team to get it onto your website or through email campaigns or nurture campaigns or or whatever it is. Um, wherever you start is an opportunity to drive up from. And I don't know that aiming for an arbitrary percentage, even if it's mm-hmm. an arbitrary percentage that is validated by your peers' engagement rate, like your product and your customers are inherently going to be a little bit different Anyway, so yeah, it's just 
I, I would say it's, it's more about observing what your actual baseline is and then starting to set goals to improve from that baseline. So um, whatever your first, you know, let's, let's say you start by measuring this and you, you find out that 7% of your customer base is, is using your uh, education product. Okay, well, then how do we in the next quarter take it from 7 to 10? Mm-hmm. And in the next quarter, how do we take it from 10 to 15? How do we take it from 15 to 25, right? Like, it, it's, it, I think it's more about understanding where you personally are starting from. I think there's a really, really great way of, of looking at it. I, I think what we're trying to say then, Adam, is it, it's you can look at baselines for the industry. They're probably not going to be relevant to what you are, where you are at, uh, particularly in an early phase, a, a lower, um, a, a younger organization, right? In earlier in the maturity continuum. Um, and you need to build it. You need to you need to advertise it. You need to promote it. There's a lot of things. This is why being a customer education professional, I think, is actually kind of challenging. It's also pretty exciting. If you're not matrixing and working with other departments and thinking about the bigger picture, it's easy not to be not to do that. You know, easy to get pigeonholed. But you'd be thinking broadly. Who is this going to? What's my audience? Have you surveyed that audience? Do you know what they're looking for? Um, one thing, there's a couple of tricks that I've used. If you start surveying people, like let's say you get a new job or you've been in a job for a few months and you're working as a customer education professional, it's super impactful to survey your customer base and to say, hey, we're thinking about blah, blah, blah with building a new university, making some training courses, and you bring them into that dialogue. I've found that that really primes the pump. And people are like, oh my gosh, you mean you're asking me? This is awesome. And then even getting going further and talking with them on the phone, if you can, you know, for a couple of cases, that at Gainsight, that helped me so tremendously. Did it again at Izuquo. Going to do it again at Outreach. It's something that like brings a customer in to tell you, help tell you what they think they need and what they know they need. And then, then they're like, well, you offered it. I'm going to come back. Yeah. So you're sort of, you're talking about the idea here of combining some voice of the customer, uh, some yeah. user research with the idea of... Of, of developing some sort of baseline or a prototype. Yeah. Right. I mean, so like if you can kind of put a, a prototype in front of some of those customers, say, this is what we're thinking of doing. Are we headed in the right direction? Mm-hmm. Would this meet your need? Then you're going to end up building something. If you've done enough of that, that will, that will probably be leading you in the right direction. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm getting a little off base with this, but the point is that if you're bringing your customers in early, you've already kind of done a promotion and you, you pique their interest. Most customers are looking for something that will help them on demand just in time. And, or maybe they want training and they'll tell you. So yeah. don't be afraid to ask them and bring that into that dialogue when you start. Well, this actually, this brings me back when I think about the question again, um, the question was, when launching a customer education program for the first time, what percent of learners should we expect to join? And I think the word join there is interesting because mm-hmm. when you're first starting a customer education program, learning might not necessarily be something that you join. Like I've started several times now at companies oh. where learn, like the learning materials when I joined were effectively some docs, right? Yeah. Like there was a knowledge base. The knowledge base is probably incomplete and inaccurate. And so you actually have a baseline even there about what customers are doing to educate themselves and whether that is or isn't working. Because typically, if you have a set of docs, you can jump into Google Analytics. You can get the views for that doc. 
Yeah. Uh, you can look in that platform, usually like whatever you're using to serve your help center and see the upvotes and downvotes on that article. And so you, you have a bit of a way to get insight into discoverability and value. And there you can start to make some hypotheses about, okay, if I like, it's less important to me to say what percentage of my customers are looking at this and more important to say, when I look at all the docs that currently exists, which ones get the most views today, which ones get the least or fewest, uh, which ones are the most highly rated, which ones are the least highly rated and why. And now you're, you're talking about something that's a little bit, it's a little bit deeper than how many people joined. It's, it's how are customers getting educated today? Yeah. So I don't know. It might be a different way to look at, look at the same question. I, I really actually dig that. I think both uh, you and I have come at it from kind of a different angle, but it's, that analytical, we've, we've got stuff. What's it doing? That's super cool. Yeah, or like and same thing, right? Like your CSMs are already delivering training. How many customers are they delivering it to and what's the, what's the feedback on it? Yeah, and, and if you don't have that, start adding little things like little surveys and stuff. The point, the point being that there's probably some baseline material you can work with. I think that's what you're saying, right? Yeah, that, that's what I'm saying. And I'm saying that you can also start to prototype things, right? Like if you know that there's one article or, or three articles, let's say, that perform really well, and those also uh, contain a lot of the same content that an onboarding would. Like maybe you're developing a quick start guide. Maybe you're developing you know, the first version of your academy. You can prototype uh, what a lot of that information might look like. You might just be sequencing some of the articles that already exist in your help center into a quick start guide. Prototype that. Put that in front of customers. Get a get a reaction from them. You're capturing the voice of the customer. Now you're iterating. Now you're figuring out how to do the next version of it more scalable, um, and start to see what the uptake of that looks like. Yeah, I just think it's well, about iteration more than baseline. Iteration. Yeah, we are, we are inherently agile as customer education professionals, whether we like to admit it or not. All right. Cool. Good. Well, shall we good go on to last? This is an amazing question. So thanks, Alex, for that. Uh, who's our last contestant? <laughs> <laughs> well, we actually have, uh, you know, you know how sometimes uh, people say long time listener, first time caller. Uh-huh. Well, this time we actually have a second time caller in that this is actually someone who's been on Ooh. the show before. So we have uh, Daniel Quick, who was a guest on our show a few episodes ago, writing back in. So let's hear what he has to say. Hi, this is Daniel Quick. I'm a former guest on your show, and I have a question. Where do you think the customer education function best fits within an organization? Okay. I think this is going to be a good discussion for us. I'm actually really passionate about getting to the root of this. Let's just just dive in. You know, um, let me frame it up and say the most common... Um, places that you might have your organization, Daniel, are customer success, of course, um, because we, we really assert and feel that customer education has kind of come out of that, extracted from it, but professional services as well, which is also we have come out of and emerged from. Um, but also you have marketing and you have product. You may have mm-hmm. other places. Um, are there any more that pop to mind? I once reported into legal. Legal? Wow. Yeah, I did. I did. I was customer oh. education reporting into legal. It was amazing. 
Yeah, that makes sense. I guess you could be in HR as well if you were more of an L and D in an L and D team, but you were kind of a mm-hmm. subunit of that. I haven't. I would love to hear if anybody's done that. So, what are some pros and cons to each of? Let's let's kind of tear through these because I think you and I both have had. I mean, we both have three recent experiences in completely different companies. So six all in all, we can kind of go through the spectrum, right? Yeah, and and so I think the one that you and I probably have the most experience with is ultimately customer success, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So like you mentioned. Like the modern, the modern idea of customer education kind of comes out of the idea of customer success. There's definitely, there are education services teams that are pivoting towards more of a customer success model. But I think the way that a lot of us who are starting customer education from scratch in the cloud are coming out of this model of customer success. Yeah. It's, uh, it naturally, this is inherently, you know, we're thinking about scale, we're thinking about adoptions. Uh, we also have some of the best access to our customer base, which is super helpful because we can get feedback and, and we can kind of build with a customer in mind. Um, how about we talk about, those are kind of good things, but what are, what are some cons? Like, what are some things that we might, like, I know I have some, so I'm, I can start this one off if, if you want, but what do you, what do you think? What are other, whether it's potential pros or cons? Well, I think with customer success, I mean, customer success, obviously like think about voice of customer, like we were talking about iterating in the last question. Well, if you mm-hmm. actually want good access to the customer being in customer success and being able to sit side by side with CSMs or support agents, um, you know, might be a customer experience team that you're going to have a lot of really good access to customers when you're working directly with CSMs. Like you can ask them questions about how customers would receive this uh, piece of feedback, if not actually talk to the customers themselves. So I think that's, I mean, that's a really interesting pro. Yeah. It's also a fairly cross-functional organization. Typically CSMs sit at the center of a lot of the conversations between product and marketing and sales um, because again you know they're kind of representing and advocating for the customer themselves what do you think yeah, Dave yeah I think so and because I know in, organiza- in organizations I've been in support could roll up to see us proserve mm-hmm. can professional services sorry I tend to abbreviate um, can roll up and you may have you know, operations, all these different teams roll into that so CS teams are predominantly quite large um, one of the things that that I I do have to say here that it is a challenge. It's been a challenge for me. I don't know about you, but commonly CSMs used to do your job. Right. They, they like CSMs in early stage in a company, like a lot of what they do is training. Yeah. And, and that's, um, that's significant. That's really important in, in you, if you're coming into a new organization, you should understand that and work with it because Let's talk about this from an emotional standpoint. One thing that I love about working with customer success managers and CS teams in particular is how much they are in are involved in the customer life. I mean, I've had CSMs that are friends, right? That I mm-hmm. that I know I continue a relationship well after I've been at the company, or I've been working with a vendor even. So you, it, I, I don't know if 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 you call that. Um, Oh gosh, what's the the syndrome? <laughs> Stockholm, Stockholm, Stockholm syndrome. I'm thinking Stockholm syndrome here. You know, oh man, I, I'm, is this an abusive relationship with the product? And but my <laughs> Dave, I don't know where me. where are you going with this? <laughs> I'm going with the, is that it's really hard to let go. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you're a CSM and you're really passionate, uh, you it feels good to help. It feels good. And yeah, and you feel like and you're, you're losing valuable. a touch point with the customer when someone else comes in and says, "Hey, we're doing training now." 
Yeah. And, and for me, this is, this is something I'm really passionate about trying to get out to you, the listener, if you're in customer success and definitely want you to think about this, we have to think about something that's important, which is scale. If you're a CSM and you're training and you like it, you might even, you might be really good at it. You might not be really good at it, but you're going to keep doing it because you think it provides value. Now I, I show up that disrupts everything because what I'm going to say to you is your job's not to train. I know you like it. I know you love it. But that's not that that's taking how many hours out of your day. And and I've looked at the numbers. It's staggering the amount of time that customer success managers do an actual training activity because they're Absolutely. like, they oh, I'll just get the on team it. on. Hey, I'll well, get the team on the call. They do it because like proper onboarding and proper education is a huge lever in terms of ultimately preventing churn and increasing customer health. Uh-huh. But that doesn't mean that every CSM should spend an ungodly amount of their time doing it because you know what there's still going to be opportunities for that csm to work strategically with the customer and to educate them even if there's another department called or another team called customer education that is giving them more of a of a platform to be able to do it at scale right like the csm is still going to be able to come in and do some of those things they're going to need to at times so i i agree um i think that can be a challenging dynamic sometimes and the other thing that i think when i think about customer success is that when you know we think about working with customer success leaders, we do want to draw a distinction between, you know, we say customer education is the scale engine of customer success because we're thinking about CSMs and support agents who are spending time doing things manually mm-hmm. that could be scaled into a customer education program that does it more effectively so they can focus their time on more strategic things. But what we don't necessarily mean is customer education itself is not necessarily the same thing as scale customer success. Right, because there are teams that are entirely responsible for low touch or tech touch customer success, and they're running campaigns, and they're um, you know sending out newsletters, and they're doing a bunch of stuff that helps communicate with customers at scale. And obviously, education programs should be a huge part of that. But education programs should also be a, a, a big part of your high touch customer success strategy too. So I think that one risk in putting it in um, customer success is if it doesn't have kind of like proper sponsorship as its own pillar that supports both your high touch and your scalable customer success motions uh, versus it just being perceived as something that only helps customer success at scale. Yeah. I mean, I could go on in this subject for quite a while. There's, there's definite pros and cons. I want to give some recommendations though, because I I think you as a customer education leader, you're going to come in uh, or even anybody that's first kicking off a program. You could be a CSM that's been assigned to a project to help build education out. doesn't mm-hmm. matter. The thing that you're going to have to do is effectively turn an aircraft carrier with a towboat, with, uh, not a towboat, with a, with a rowboat. You, you are, you've a got a lot like of, a rowboat and a tugboat put together, right? Tugboat. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I, I Freudian that up. Um, <laughs> yeah, I see the tugboats out my window on me, obviously. So uh, you, you have a lot of work to do because again, you're fighting the, the good nature of people who want to help. And you have to somewhat convince them that, hey, I'm going to take this load. And you could do that by communicating numbers. You can do that by engaging those those CSMs as subject matter experts to help pull their mind share off. And when you're doing that, you can affect a change in their minds because you say, look, I'm converting your your words into pixels. I'm, I'm getting it into paper. I'm, I'm getting it out there for you. I'm amplifying you. So that you can say, oh, look, we've created this on-demand course. Why don't you go look at that and then come talk to me? And now my conversation is strategic, not training. Um, give them credit. 
help them build the program and be interlocked with them. That, that's mm-hmm. my recommendation because it's very easy to get turtled and start focusing on building curriculum and you're gone for months and then come back and your CS team's like, where are you? We built all this other stuff. It happens. Yeah, CSMs will will very quickly start, you know, modifying whatever deck they use, create a new version mm-hmm. of the deck. Like they can they can work really quickly, even if they're not doing all the instructional design. And usually, there's a lot more CSMs than there are customer education people too. So, you know, that can that content can start to balloon out. Okay, we've talked a lot about CS. A lot about we CS. Will yeah. Probably not talk as much about some of the other ones, but I think that like CS is. I mean, it's it's certainly the most common place for education to live in an org. Let's let's talk though about larger orgs, um, Mm -hmm. often by that point, you either have different departments for customer success and services, or you have services that lives within customer success. But either way, there's kind of an idea here that education might be within professional services. Yeah, and that changes things quite a bit. Now, you're now going back to some previous questions we had about, you know, when do you go to fee based training? you're, you're starting to think about a revenue driving program. Uh, you're thinking about certifications. Uh, those are usually a, a paid thing. Now you're getting, maybe get subscriptions, training subscriptions that include different libraries. Mm-hmm. Then you have premium mm-hmm. offerings. There's a lot going on. You're, yeah. you're growing up. You're, you're in the big leagues now because you have customers that, you know, you're talking about going up market. You're going enterprise. Yeah. So at a certain point when you're serving an enterprise audience, like especially if you're in a B2B company, because granted, not everyone who listens to us are are doing B2B software. But um, when you're doing B2B enterprise software, there's an expectation that customers have at a certain point that you are just going to come out and train them or you're going to do private training for Mm -hmm. them. And at that point, you want to make sure that you can resource it, which means that it needs to be paid, which means that often you're running on a P&L. So I think there's a perception that at a certain point when your education team grows up, and I'm putting that in, in scare quotes, <laughs> <Air> quotes. <laughs> um, that they that they run as an education services team. And that was certainly true in the old world of enterprise B2B software, because you would come out, you would do this on-prem implementation, you'd come out, you'd do a week or two of training, and of course, that needed to be a paid services, part of the implementation cost. Um, yeah. I think we're still seeing a lot, like enterprise customers still... Uh, require or demand those sort of high-touch, bespoke, premium-feeling training services, but mm-hmm. I don't necessarily know that it's where every team is going to go when they quote-unquote grow up. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think this is this is interesting because it, for me, it almost represents kind of a schism or a break breakpoint for your program because part of you lives in this world. The pro of working with ProServe is, hey, now we're thinking about revenue. Now we're actually formalizing. My team's growing. Um, cool. This is really helpful because now I've got that support because leadership loves to see that we've got a revenue generating component. Mm-hmm. But the con for me is that I feel like I tend to get railroaded or really laser focused on uh, things like onboarding. You know, And, yeah. and that's not... And, and here's this is for me a philosophical discussion and I think one that you need to bring attention to your leadership. So when I report to professional services, I I'm thinking revenue, I'm thinking workflow, I'm thinking process and allocation, utilization, all that kind of thing. It's a different world, completely different verbs. The other hand in CS, I'm thinking about adoption and scale, the proxy metrics associated with what is getting somebody to adopt over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. And the plays in that are not just onboarding, but it's re-engagement, somebody leaves, like all this other stuff. And like, how do I keep evergreen? How do I have new stuff? So it's, it, 
it's hard. It, it pulls you in two directions. And I think you need to be aware of that. Yeah. So, I mean, for a lot of for a lot of companies, when they think about professional services, the majority of professional services that they do for a long time are really implementations. Mm-hmm. And yes, that can be limiting if you also want to focus on more maturity driving activities. So I think part of what you need to do if you're an education services team reporting into a professional services team is really think about what sort of offerings can we drive and provide to our customers who are at a deeper stage of value realization or deeper into their maturity journey. And thinking about that early on and not just thinking about implementations mm-hmm. becomes super crucial in tying you back to the broader purpose of, of customer success. The other thing I would say is that, you know, once you start to really think about utilization and we're delivering services, we have utilization targets, we have revenue targets, is that can really start to take precedence over the work that you're doing to, uh, you know, enact more scalable work or cross-functional work or things that aren't paid. So I would also advocate for education teams reporting into services teams to really think about, um, you know, delineating billable versus non-billable roles um, so that you you really do make sure, or at least setting utilization targets that support your team doing uh, enough non-billable work that you're really serving the whole community more broadly, not just driving uh, utilization-based projects. I love how you say that. That's that's really cool. And that's something maybe we want to do an episode on someday because it's very hard. Absolutely. Um, let, let's do um, rapid fire for the last couple because we, we want to keep keep moving. Yeah. I'd like to take the marketing if you don't mind because I think let's, this let's one's... Let's do it. You reported to marketing. At have Super you reported right? marketing as well? I have past? not. No. Um, I, so I want to do a shout out to... Oh, Dan. actually, I have. You have? I, have. I, I just remember that a long time ago. Long time ago, mine was pretty recent though. Azuqua, uh, yeah. Dan Kogan, uh, again, really appreciate that opportunity to come in and be a part of the marketing team, which was eye opening and, and so exciting to me. I mean, really, from the bottom of my heart, appreciate this opportunity. The thing about working in marketing is that it's very different, fundamentally different from working in any other, definitely professional services on the other side of the spectrum, because you're a lot, you're you're thinking about customers all the freaking time. For one, not like you aren't in professional services, but it's it's promotional, awareness, branding, all the things that get people excited. Professional services is less excited as now we're actually motivated to do. Um, so things that I, I, I liked is that the fact I was really close to product marketing and we're so close to product marketing. What we do, we're kind of a lens or a flavor of product marketing that goes much deeper. And, and like worries about outcomes, outcome, but we're thinking the same language in product marketing. What we want outcomes. I put a video up on LinkedIn and it showed this new feature that we've got and somebody's excited. And now we have the inbound marketing and that goes into sales and it comes back through, but those people are learning. There's no doubt about that. Mm-hmm. So now if you couple that, this was really strong. If you couple that product marketing with actual education it's impactful and very powerful because now some people will actually traverse that and come right over into the educational stuff and go deeper. And then they go, Oh my gosh, this solves my problem. I'm going to sales. There is no question. I'm buying this product. Absolutely. I I think that customer education and product marketing are, are really two peas in a pod as far as roles are concerned. Yeah. So what else do we got? That one's a quick one. Yeah. Okay. How about, how about product product teams? So we definitely see, yeah, we see some, uh, I, I think increasing numbers of, customer education teams living within product. And this is coming out of the idea that uh, for some products, really being able to drive a lot of contextual product adoption is is important and it's the main type of education that, that they want to drive. So especially for products that don't necessarily have this huge like enterprise 
services arm, but they're really they're really a product focused company. Uh, maybe they want to drive a lot of self service customer learning. Living in product uh, can make a ton of sense. And in fact, here. Uh, your role as a customer educator might almost look like being a growth product manager. Yeah. You know, there is a con there that I, th- I could detect. That is, okay, my, my partner is a, an Android developer, does not like writing documentation. God help us if they were asked to write <laughs> training material. Um, it's not out of the question, but, you know, that's something that I detect uh, but it, it's a good point. I mean, there's a real advantage if you're really close to the product that you you can make great content because you're close to the people that are making it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're you're kind of sitting on the front line, so to speak, with the developers and and the other PMs who are working on education. And certainly, I would say, you know, if you are pursuing a strategy that is really high on in-product education, contextual education, using a lot of the the in-product tools and patterns. Uh, then that might be a great place to to sit. But Dave, uh, you know, we've talked about a few different thoughts here, but I, I I think you you have some final thoughts here to share. Yeah, I'll make them quick. Uh, f- first off, I think there's it's always going to be a challenge trying to figure out where we belong. Um, I've talked with CEOs, I've talked to all kinds of different peoples, different all of you that I've I've met in person. Like, where are you at? What do you do? It, it just depends. It really depends. It can work anywhere. Um, I just wanted to short, share a quick story that uh, I'll give a shout out to Nick Meta, the CEO of Gainsight. And, you know, you're, don't be afraid of talking to your CEO either or your executive suite. And because I think being a champion and advocating for education, when you get to the people who understand what your language you're talking about, and you're talking above the line, below the line, above the line, you're talking to the CEO and how I can help you scale. Nick and I talked, we had a 15 minute skip level one day which turned into like a couple hours. And I Very was cool. like, I was amazed. I mean, he said, you know what? Let me make a call. Okay, my schedule's cleared. I really need to learn this, what you're talking about. This is super exciting. And that is so rewarding because now people realize education is a big part of your company. Uh, I would say, ultimately, I'd love to see like more a CLO type position earlier on where we could kind of be across functional and really emphasize that. But overall, if I were to be asked, and I'd like to know what you say before we quit, I think CS is the best place to be right away when you start. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think if we start to see more of a move towards the CLO, the chief learning officer, Mm -hmm. uh, that will probably end up taking us a little bit I don't know. It's it's a different schema in some ways than where customer education lives today. Because typically, I think customer education teams are not necessarily doing the hybridized model where you're responsible for internal enablement and external yeah. enablement and partners. Like I, I do see some of that, and I think for companies that are pursuing that sort of model, then yeah, maybe eventually that will evolve into a, a chief learning officer model. But I also yeah, I don't know. I, I think that for most smaller companies, we're not necessarily going to see education yeah. representation on that level. And I, I don't know that we need to. I mean, for as many people as say that, you know, customer education uh, will have a mark of success by reporting directly to the CEO. Um, I like the ambition <laughs> of that statement. I think like, I think there, there would be huge potential in doing that. But um, it's kind of scary too. <laughs> it, well, it is. It is a little. It is a little scary, and I also don't know that it's it's more beneficial 
to have customer education represented independently at that level no. than to really be part and parcel of a company's customer success strategy or their marketing strategy or maybe their product strategy. And so either way, you're going to work really cross-functionally with those groups anyway. And so, um, yeah, I don't have a, I don't have a super interesting uh, perspective on it beyond saying that customer success seems to be the most common. We definitely are seeing more pop up in marketing and product. And I'd be interested to see where those teams go over time. Whew. We've covered a lot of ground, Adam. Let's, we sure uh, have two mailbags, two 40 minute episodes. So wonderful. let's wrap it up. Listeners, right. if you want to learn more, we have a podcast website at customer.education where you can find show notes and other material. On Twitter, I am at Avramescu. And I'm at Dave Darrington. Special thanks to our friend Alan Cota for our amazing theme music. Thanks again for that. He is uh, McCavity's Rainbow on Twitter. And if this helped you out, you can help us out by subscribing in Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Stitcher, Spotify, the whole shebang, wherever it is you listen to podcasts. We'd really appreciate if you left us a positive review on Apple Podcasts because that actually helps the most. It really helps expose our podcast to other people, helps us keep this whole thing going. And to our audience, thanks for joining us. Go out, educate, experiment, and find your people. Thanks for listening. <laughs>